challenges remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg, and to my left is my dear friend Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. Hi, Ben. How are you? I'm doing well. It's been so long since we've seen each other last. So, so long. So long. We are now in the beautiful state of South Carolina, more specifically Charleston, more specifically at the Family Circle Cup, more specifically in the stadium of the Family Circle Cup in some abandoned room that someone was nice enough to show us exactly. for our recording studio. So, so like, pardon any echoes or weird sound issues. This is about as good as it gets when it comes to finding a nice and quiet place uh, on the grounds because it's been bustling. It's been absolutely bustling. I mean, you could not normally, I think it's fair to say that a doubles match between Grant and Ularova and Rasolska Klepach would be a pretty quiet place on the grounds. Other than Ben screaming, of course. Of course, with you know, huge admiration for all involved in that, but it was packed here, packed to the brim, and there wasn't really, not every match has not been packed, but the ones that have been packed have been surprising a lot of times, and yeah. the crowds here have been good for afternoons on Monday and Tuesday. It's very much a, a kind of a ladies who lunch kind of tournament. There's a very uh, feminine vibe, yeah. I think. And then the, the audience is definitely ma- vast majority female, which yes. you don't get even at most WTA tournaments. Right, it's vast majority female. They're they're kind of, you know, kind of the range, really, of older, younger, everything like that. But even just, you know, the tournament is sponsored by Dove. So you see, like, the Dove around the thing and the Family Circle magazine names are around mm-hmm. the stadium. So you see, like, Better Homes and Garden and Parenting and things. It's just, like, a very... It's a softness about this tournament that's actually quite nice and refreshing. It's very social. It's yeah, very, very social. social. Um, you know, a lot of the box seats and lower bowls are, like, um, bought out by local tennis clubs. Mm-hmm. So you see, like, the women who seem to clearly play in some sort of league, you know, just sitting there watching some tennis. So that's a nice it's Groups a nice of vibe. women. Not just group, yeah. big groups of women. So, I mean, that's, that's, that's different. Definitely yeah. different. And it's cool to see a WTA tournament that has that sort of ambiance to it. Well, it's, it doesn't feel like an afterthought. No. It doesn't feel slapped together, and it doesn't feel like it's been given short shrift by, you know, like, oh, we bought this tournament, we have to, like, throw everything together. I mean, there are, you know, volunteers here have been volunteers for years. There's been a lot of local interest. I mean, I, you and I were both shocked as to how busy All Access Hour was yesterday. Yeah. There was probably more people there than was for Indian Wells All Access Hour, really. That's probably close. Close. Definitely comparable. Yeah, comparable. So, um, you know, a lot of local interest. And with um, a much weaker field for All Access. I mean, you had some people come into All Access. Obviously, you had Serena, but then you also had people like Lucy Safarova and Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova who probably don't get too many All Access stops in their true. career. So, yeah. So, so yeah. So, it's been, I mean, so far it's been good. I mean, we've been here for a few days, but, um, and I think it's our first time both for Ben and I to be here um, and to, to be at the Family Circle Cup, but it's, uh, it's been impressive. I like it. I mean, I like the tournament. I, I don't fly, as Ben was pointing out, he's like, you skipped Miami. It's not like you go to every single tournament, and yet you still flew cross-country to come to Charleston. Mm-hmm. And, um, and yeah, and I'm glad that I did. Very And I'm glad you're here. Oh, so cheesy. So, but this does sort of mark a change in sort of the calendar. Obviously, you turn over to April in, the, in a regular calendar and the tennis calendar because they both have the word April on them. <laughs> Let's look back at the first last three months, basically. It's a good time to wrap up sort of what's happened so far at the first quarter mark of the year. So want to start, let's start with the men. Mm-hmm. How have things been what you expected or not what you expected from the ATP in 2012? Hmm. It's so hard because I find that it's very difficult to kind of gauge the predictability or unpredictability of the ATP without being blinded by the top four. Yeah. So it's really hard to look past that and say, well, okay, um, coming into 2012, you know, there were a lot of questions surrounding what Novak could do. He proved what he could do, um, beating both Andy Murray and Rafa in rather, you know, kind of, it wasn't spectacular fashion. It was just gritty fashion, gutsy fashion um, in Melbourne. And then kind of disappears off the radar a little bit and, you know, suffers a bit of a a tough loss, I think, to Isner just because that could have gone either way. And then finishes the first quarter of the season by taking Miami the way that he did, you know, I mean, he's, so what's the story been on the ATP? Novak's still the guy, Andy's still on the outside looking in, Rafa's got some injury woes that he has to be worried about, and Fed is still lurking, it's and I feel like that's... very much beat goes on, basically. Yeah, I don't yeah. think there's really much new on the, on the ATP, and that's, you know, 
that's a lot of the been a lot of the appeal of the OTP is the consistency. You know the four guys are gonna get there. There has been a little bit of infusion in the last few weeks of new blood with Isner making a Master Series final, which obviously wasn't expected. But yeah, I mean, it's more Federer still lurking there. Federer can win big titles. He hasn't been, he beaten it all to win Indian Wells and then Isner. So, I mean, it's setting up to, you know, stay what it was. The big guys will get there, they will play each other. And yeah, and Novak is still on top. Novak wasn't on top in terms of the ATP race rankings for 2012 until after he won Miami. Federer had done so well, yeah. winning Indian Wells, winning Dubai, winning Rotterdam. So, no, absolutely. And I think, um, I mean, here's a question for you, Ben, of the American men, of all the stories that have been involved with the American men. What has been the most surprising, whether good or bad? Oh, see, I think the most surprising is probably hmm, most surprising is probably Marty Fish. I think Marty Fish not being able to string to make together too many wins. I don't think he had back-to-back wins at a real tournament until Miami this year, which is a big shock for some of his top eight in the in the world. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the biggest shock. But Isner, Isner, I think, was sort of expected to get top 10, maybe, maybe a little ahead of schedule by doing it this early in the year, but him winning Novak was a surprise. Roddick, I think Roddick's mostly, mostly gone to a course that would have been not what we expected, but it's understandable. Yeah, it's understandable. I, mean, I don't think that we really thought that he would suffer as many injuries so early as he had in the first yeah. quarter. Um, so it's kind of just taken him off grid really more than anything because you can't criticize the guy really or come down on him when his body's breaking down and he's not being able to play well. But then he comes into Miami and, and does what he did and, and beats Fed. So, you know, you know that there's still some spark there. But, can, I, can I change my answer? Sure. I'm going to change my answer to most surprising male, American male, to Donald Young. Oh, who has not been good at all in 2012. Yeah. So, you know, which, which is why he's, you know, not relevant. He was, you know, really getting himself in the conversation of making his fourth round of U.S. Open and semifinals in Washington and so on. But now he's sort of out of it. We haven't talked about it on the show, I don't think, ever. No. So. Well, it's, it's, it's hard to even know what's going on with the guy when you can't even see his matches because he doesn't get through a yeah. single round, right? I mean. He's not somebody you're going to slip out to an outer court to watch in his first round. Right. And he's losing that match. So you don't see him anymore. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's tough. That's, That's a, good, a good one. Thank you. And maybe, maybe we could have talked more about Nadal specifically. He is going into the his favorite part of the season. Going into Monte Carlo, which will be interesting because I think Djokovic is going to be there this year playing Monte Carlo. So that's determined that Nadal has won an absolutely obscene seven times in a row, I believe. So having Novak show up there. Could, could be could sparks could fly. Yeah, that, that's he's he's a bit of an interloper. Yeah. It's like seriously, man, you can't even give me Monte Carlo. <laughs> I know. Although Djokovic doesn't live in Monte Carlo, yes. so I think that's fair for him to show up to his backyard play. Yeah. But that that'll be that'll be more interesting than usual. So that's sort of the first major stop after Davis Cup for the second quarter of the men's season. So women was for uh, the first quarter, obviously Victoria Azarenka, indisputably. And this going twenty six and one so far, mm-hmm. and yeah, everybody. Else, and there's a solid number two now, and uh, Maria Sharapova. But Victoria, not Victoria, Agnieszka Radwanska is coming up quick, only having lost four matches all year, which is not a small number. But she's only lost to Azarenka. So, is there a case for making Radwanska the power rankings number two at this point? Do you think? Power rankings wise, I def I, I think that I would if I kind of did that whole you know ESPN style power rankings thing where you take out you know the objective metrics and you just think who's the second best player in, in the women's game as of, through the first quarter of 2012. You kind of got to say Redmanska. I mean, uh, Sharapova didn't have to run into Vika before you know the the, the, the finals at any at any point in time. And, um, and the way that Redwanska, somebody had, had mentioned because I think when Red, what Redwanska had won. Uh, what was it, Dubai, Um, I had given her a B in Mm -hmm. my report card because I was like, I mean, you didn't really beat anybody to do it. And she wasn't, I mean, she was playing all right, but it wasn't spectacular. Um, I think this time, I think I said, I said she got top marks after winning Miami. And somebody said, you know, why aren't you giving her a B? Because she didn't have to play Vika and, you know, like whatever. And my response basically is, well, no one saw her beating Sharapova the way she did. Not in straight sets. Three sets? Maybe but not in straight sets. They have a 7-1 head-to-head. I mean, you know, Sharapova hadn't beaten her since that U.S. Open in 2007. Right, yeah. Radoska really had been struggled at through mightily yeah. on clay even mm-hmm. at French Open at uh, yeah, 
And, and, and to be fair, and, was, and then people were saying, well, she, but she beat, you know, a tired Venus. I was like, okay, yes, but if Aga did not play as well as she did in the first half of that match, Venus might have started to, started to believe and kind of get over her fatigue and everything like Maybe. that. So there was a mental aspect of it. So I don't know. I mean, I think that, that uh, there is something to be said about her being the number two player. I think that the best development when it comes to Ridwanska right now is the fact that she pulled out of Charleston. Yeah. And I think that, that I think Kamakshi Tandana tweeted this, that it shows a level of maturity that she did, she isn't trying to play through injury or not even, I mean, who knows if she fatigue, is or isn't. Yeah. yeah, but fatigue and managing her schedule. And I think that the, the biggest thing about it is that it shows that she is willing to accept the fact that you are now a top-ranked player. Yeah. Bank on your talent. Bank on the fact that you will, you will earn points by winning the big tournaments and not because you're, you're, you're cherry-picking. Or not cherry picking, but like you know, low hanging fruit. Yeah, I knew there was a fruit analogy in there. there I fruit. was gonna find it. Low I was gonna fruit, find exactly. it in that basket somewhere. So other other big stories on the women's side. First quarter of the year is sort of the state of the three wild cards in tennis, which is Serena, Venus, and Kim Kwiatkowski. Yeah, they're all in pretty different places right now. Kim, I think, her stock is definitely lower than it was at the start of 2012. And declining. And declining. Yeah. I think Miami was a huge sell moment for. Kim, uh, Venus opposite probably. I think Venus had a better Miami people expected. We just saw her play today here in Charleston. She beat Iveta Bensova. It's a tough match against JJ, but if she plays you know, a relatively full play schedule, and that just means, you know, here, Rome, Madrid, maybe one more if she Does needs she to. she have to go to Fed Cup too? Yeah, she might have, No, actually, I don't think she has to. I think Serena, Serena has, has to. has to, okay. So that'll be interesting, seeing how Serena does in car keys. Serena Ukraine. does Ukraine. <laughs> Send the cameras. There you go. Uh, that would make an amazing one-hour documentary special there running on Comedy Central. <laughs> <laughs> Serena in Ukraine can be interesting. Serena, I think, is unpredictable. I mean, we didn't expect to lose to Wozniacki, which we talked about last episode. But we also, you know, still think she can beat anybody on any day. As Aranka, Redbox included. I mean, if, if if Serena and Aga step into the ring for a match, we would pick Serena to win that. Absolutely. Yeah. So. No doubt. Um, I, but that's always going to be the issue with her, though, is that, and I think I've probably said this a gazillion times before, but just, yeah, she can win the one-off match. She could probably win two matches. But, has she, you know, it hasn't been, obviously, it's, obviously this is not that long ago, which is why this is an argument that it seems a bit futile to make right now, or at least premature. But can Serena string together five wins, yeah. six wins, seven wins? I mean, she obviously did last summer during her incredible run through Stanford and um, playing really smart. Yeah, Toronto, um, and then through the U.S. Open. But uh, but I don't know. I mean, it's I I, I want to see her get fitter, not fitter like conditioning wise. Match match fit. match tough. Match tough as Venus said today. Yeah. So those are basically the stories on the women's side. What do you What do you most Want, what questions do you want answered in clay? What questions do I want answered in clay? I want to know when Andrea Pekovic plans on rejoining this tour. Okay. I miss her. I miss her. Her just. I miss her, especially like as one who covers the sport from behind the scenes, and like you have to like go to press conferences and you sit in press conferences that are really boring half the time. Yeah. But the minute that Andrea Pekovic like wins a match, you're like, yes. I know today there's going to be an awesome press conference, and she will be game for any question I ask her. She's not going to shut down. She's not going to, like, hold it against me if I ask her something that's maybe a little bit more pointed or direct. And those players mean so much to you when you have to write about this sport on a weekly basis. So I miss Petco. I would like for her to come back. On the men's side, anyway, switch that. I think it's interesting to see what Nadal, Djokovic, Redux on clay will be like this yes. year. So I think it's fair to say that as good as Djokovic has been in 2012, he's not as good as he was in the start of 2011. Nadal also has question marks. Will Federer be able to insert himself in that, in that discussion? Will Murray be able to sort of have everybody else, you know, fight each other and him be the last, yeah. you know, Chinese fighting fish left standing exactly. in a tank while everyone else is going at each other? We'll see. I mean, I think this could be a weirder French Open people give it credit for. I agree. On both sides. So, how, how Azarenka will do on clay, that's transferring a, her momentum? That's one thing. I mean, I know that you are very hot, not very high, but you kind of, compared to me, you're much higher on Vika's opportunities on clay. clay. Yeah, we and talked about this a little bit earlier. Yeah, like I, I'm not really sold that she's a clay quarter, but you kind of well, are she made a bit the, more. She made the finals in Madrid last year. I know. She made, she, the quarter, she made the quarters of French losing to Lina off yeah. in three, I want to say. So, yeah, I think that 
I think she still is the number one power ranking player on clay. I don't know who you put ahead of her. Radwanska hasn't had great results on clay. Uh, Sharapova obviously has not had tremendous results on clay. She did win Rome last year. She did win Rome. Sam Stoser could actually become a factor again on clay. She's still a top five. Don't tease me. And, Don't tease me. Yeah, so we'll see. It'll be interesting to see what happens on clay for sure. But, I mean, one thing that does um, that stands out for me on the WTA going into clay, and also this ties into looking back on the first quarter, is... Like those players where you're like, what the heck is going on with you? Yeah. So the JJs, Anastasia Pavlyuchenkova, mm. Francesca Schiavone, mm-hmm. who's been, I mean, you forget, she was a Roland Garros finalist last year. I mean, it's not like she took the whole year off I and mean, she still played really, really well, at least through the clay season. Is she just completely checked out? Is she coming back she in? Done. Is she, is she done. She's done. I mean, she's old. I mean, she's old. I mean, she, she, she could be done, yeah. you know? And if she was done, it wouldn't be no, you know, shame being done after what she did the last few years. Absolutely, absolutely. But like, you know, those those three names, or, or you know, Kuznetsova hasn't done any. She really, was just horrible through the hard courts. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot more women that I feel like could make progress. Um, Ivanovich. Ivanovich was, I think, a pretty good story. Ivanovich, seeing how she translates. I mean, she did play well in Indian Wells. Uh, and she did well in Miami. And well in Miami, losing in three very high quality sets to Zena. Mm-hmm. So how she moves to clay, if she gets back in the top ten, these are all things that could happen for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we'll see, especially uh, Overa Zvonareva, who had a atrocious hardcore season, but it looked pretty solid against a very bad <laughs> Katarina Bondarenko today in, in the first round. So, I was, uh, ben and I were both, I think, writing something, and so we were in the press center watching the, the monitors um, during the Vera and uh, K-Bond match, mm-hmm. and we were watching, and I think I turned to Ben within two games. I think Vera was up like two love, and I was like, I don't know, I think something's wrong with Bondarenko. Yeah. I think she's going to retire. And then she, like three like, three games later, I was like, no, that's just her game. <laughs> she, she's, Kater, she Katerina Bondarenko is not doing very well right now. Oh. She had, first of all, she has blonde hair, which is her sister's thing. Just you shouldn't mess with the it branding. It doesn't work for that. her. It doesn't work. Secondly, she hit 23 double faults in her loss in Miami to Danielle Hentisova, which is an absurd amount. She hit three in her first service game today, but then sort of calmed think, down. You know, if there's one thing, Katerina, that you probably worked on the last week, you think it would be served? You think it's served? Yeah, probably. But then we, there actually was a contest in the media room today. Um, they've been doing a sort of prediction contest for prizes this year, which is, which is interesting and keeps you involved or paying attention to stuff you weren't otherwise. Yesterday it was what Christina McHale's first serve percentage would be, and today it was the duration of Bondarenko uh, versus Zivanareva, and Courtney guessed about 130-something, I guess 150-something, and it was about 48 minutes. Yeah, we didn't see that one coming. We did not see that one coming. <laughs> so we didn't win any prizes, but it's a long week, I guess. It's okay. We'll I'm get not, our not two bottles good, of wine. I'm not a very good point. Loser. One of the other stories that came out this week, not in Charleston, is the changes to the U.S. Davis Cup roster for their quarterfinal match against France in Monte Carlo. It's still sort of surprises me that I think of Monte Carlo being Monaco and being a not country that's not France. But anyway... They originally had nominated, Jim Curry had nominated last week, uh, both Brian brothers, John Isner and Marty Fish. And then it came out over Twitter and then over official releases that Ryan Harrison was in Monaco slash France. And Marty Fish was not. And Marty Fish put out a release saying that he had been suffering from extreme fatigue and had a minor health scare. That required him to go to the hospital. He was hospitalized with his minor health scare. So, Courtney, what do we make? those sort of coded phrases for whatever was going on with Marty Fish after his quarterfinal run. Well, it was also, it was, yeah, it was also kind of, it was a disconcerting chain of events, I think, because I think that the story leaked before the USTA was ready to announce it. Yeah. Um, at least, I don't know, I mean, I knew about it before and I tweeted it before and then like, you know, like a minute or two later, the USTA confirmed that, that Fish was out. So I think that, that the story moved a little bit faster, which makes me think that it's a little bit more of a complicated situation behind the scenes um, in terms of figuring out, you know, what was wrong with Marty, what they, what Marty was going to say, what, you know, and all that sort of stuff. The immediate knee-jerk kind of reaction was, oh my gosh, I hope it's not mono, mm. because um, as much as it was extreme fatigue, that and it was odd because the um, 
The press release was very specific in terms of saying the doctors believed that it was ext extreme fatigue based on his, his heavy playing schedule in the first quarter of the year, which is odd because it was only 12 matches. Yeah. It was 12 matches. A in lot of tournaments. A lot of tournaments, lot but of it was 12 matches. It was a lot of travel. Yeah. But the notion that he couldn't, that his body was like kind of hit a physical wall after Miami because he was so run down, especially when it's like something he's never really brought up in in press conferences in terms of being tired. Yeah. At least not as far as well, I he, heard. he did I, at Hotman Cup. I saw him and he was talking about Hotman how he how he sense. didn't how he didn't really feel like he had an off season because this was his first time <laughs> playing the World Tour Finals, Year End Championships, etc. Being one of those top eight guys and having to play really a full. Schedules. I think, especially at the end part of last year, he was somebody who was scheduling to try to keep his ranking up. Mm -hmm. Understandably, when you have a chance of being in the top eight, mm -hmm. I don't think too many could fault him for that. So maybe it's just catching up to him now. I don't know. I didn't. My thought wasn't on him. My thought was just sort of just like, you know, just sort of like mental, just like complete mm -hmm. exhaustion there. And that could be. I mean, he's had his results haven't been what they want, what he wants to be. I don't think, speaking of race ranking. At least before Miami, he was well to the top 50. Yeah, he was in the 60s or 70s. Yeah, so I assume he moved up probably top, I haven't looked, but moved up significantly for making a Masters quarterfinal in Miami. But still, it hasn't been the kind of year he wants. And then, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting how we treat these announcements. Obviously, it's different than a similar announcement that came this week from up north to uh, Rebecca Marino. Where Rebecca Marino, for those of you who haven't heard and don't know who she is, very possible. She was a player who broke in the top 50 last year for WTA. That's right. In Canada, really coming out of nowhere. And this week, after pulling out of a bunch of tournaments for personal reasons, now that she's taking time off for fatigue or exhaustion or whatever those terms mean. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it is a bit of a coded phrase. You yeah. know, I mean, ideally, I mean, most of the times you want to just take it for face value and say, yeah, I mean, I totally get it. There, you know, there are days where I don't want to go to work either, you yeah. know, and it has nothing to do with the fact that I'm lazy or don't have work ethic, it's that I literally cannot call out of bed, I'm so tired. It's a grind. I mean, it's a grind. It's a huge grind, the hamster wheel that we talked about last week. The I mean, hamster wheel. So. Yeah, so it's understandable, but when, what, what, I guess you start to worry about the player personally, yeah. just, you know, like, as a person, like, you know, when you hope that it's nothing, nothing more than that, so, but we'll have to keep an eye on Marty and see, you know, what happens. I, I would assume that if he's skipping Davis Cup, that he's not going to play Monte Carlo, no, he's not going to play anything play until, until Madrid. Uh, at the earliest. I would think so. I mean, there maybe, I don't think he's on the Houston entry list. Would be the only other thing he could no, he play. was. He was on Houston. I almost want to say, yes, he is on the Houston entry list because in the release it says that he hopes to be ready for Houston. Gotcha. Okay. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. And then he got replaced by Ryan Harrison. Ryan Harrison will now be playing live rubbers away on clay against a real tennis country in France. What do you think about Harrison's chances about picking Harrison? For I, that think role? That, I think that right now, if you could plug Ryan Harrison into like a power generator in France, he could power the entire country. Yeah. That kid is probably chomping at the bit. Like, this is his, you know, put me in coach, you know, I'm ready to play. Um, I think it's a, I mean, I, th I think it's a great, I think it's a great choice. Um, I don't think, I don't think Courier had any other choices, to be yeah. quite frank. I, I think that. It wasn't going to be Donald Young. It wasn't going to be awful. Donald Young. It wasn't going to be Sam Clary. Not, not right now. Sam Query is, is getting better, but he's still undercooked right now. Yeah. Uh, and the stakes are too high in this situation. Um, it wasn't going to be Roddick. I mean, with, I mean Roddick, uh, you know, on one hand, yeah, could he go out there and try and gut out a win? Possibly. Would it possibly derail his, his season? Almost definitely. Almost definitely. You know, like he said after he lost in, in relatively quiet fashion to, to Monaco and Miami that he wants to, like, get back and get his body prepared and he wants to get his body prepared for what tournaments? Wimbledon and the Olympics. Yeah. Because it's on grass. So screw the clay. Like, I'm not going to go He will play myself. clay. He's going he to play on play for now. He's planning on play. But we'll see what actually happens there. And definitely the priorities are there, which it should be because he has to know how to, you know, deal, use the cards he has in his yeah. hand. So obviously it wasn't going to be way out of it, I don't think. Probably not. Although Probably. it would have been, been a bold choice. Would have been a bold is, choice. Is bold like the a, right just, word? Just like it was for Genesis Strig. Wayne oh. Odesnik is always a bold choice. Oh, I just don't think that you understand what the word bold means. <laughs> <laughs> Your understanding of it and my understanding of it are completely different. Fair enough. Mm -hmm. So it is now time for our famed pick a number segment. This week, we pulled the random number generator and we got the number 60. 
It's another high number for us. And on the women's side, we get someone who I was pretty excited to talk about, Alexandra Wozniak. Nice. Who we've both seen a bunch of yeah. recently. But on the men's side, we get Ivan Dodig, which means we put that ball back in the hopper. We already had him. We so we, have, we can't take I, we can't take AWAS either. No, I don't. We think are so. making up these roles as we go along. We and absolutely ben, ben are. Ben looks really smug, like he's like, ha ha. Well, because I put them, I put rehit the number, okay. get a new number, and get our lowest number yet, just twenty three. I like it. Which is a step in the right direction. I like it. For the women, we get Pong Shui. Nice. And for the men, we get Marin Chilich. Okay. That's so pretty can, nice. So see, it's nice when you're inside the top 30 for the yeah. first time. Feels good. You know, Feels it's good. like, it's sort of like, it's sort of like, you know, when you walk onto an airplane like we do, we walk into coach and we sort of give, you know, people sitting in first class like a dirty look, like, oh, yeah, you need this to that be up what here. I do. And then you sit back there and mingle with the common folk. But when you're actually up there in the top 30, like we are now in the rankings, you don't see those looks. You're like, this is nice. <laughs> you can't see those looks because you're too busy downing your fourth mimosa. Absolutely. Judy Murray style. <laughs> she a mimosa fan? Oh, yeah. Good. Oh, yeah. She likes her shampoo on the plane. Very nice. BA takes care of Mrs. Murray, I think. <laughs> So we'll start with Peng Shui. Okay. Speaking of uh, the Murray, Peng Shui was Shami Murray's mixed doubles partner at Australian Open, which is worth nothing for the records to talk about her. But uh-huh. she, they lost in the first round. Yeah. Uh, Good what are your thoughts on Peng Shui? I like Peng Shui. She's two with two hands on both sides, mm-hmm. so she's got a little bit of the Bartoli Celis thing going on. She's had a horrible year. Um, she really, really made some progress last year and, and got her ranking up. Um, like 15-inch. Yeah, she was in the top 20, which was great. My, I understand she has some sort of um, um, injury regarding, I think, her back. It's like okay. some sort of um, like bone problem. It's mm. like an osteo something. I could totally be making that up. Please don't she's think had, that I'm trying had, to slander. But there's an injury. She's had a lot of injury problems in yeah. her career. Yeah, so so that's unfortunate. Um, one thing about Peng Shui that many people don't know about is that when she was younger, she had heart surgery. To, um, to fix a defect in her heart that would allow her to play tennis. And otherwise, she could have lived a perfectly normal life with the, with the heart defect, but when she was young, she knew she wanted to play tennis. Um, and so she and her parents agreed to, to get her the heart surgery, and so she did, and look Pretty at her Pretty big now. decision. Huge decision. Big decision. So it tells you a lot about the, her courage and, and stuff like that. But she's really sweet and press. Um, you know, her of the three, she probably has maybe... Actually, probably the worst English of the three of, of Nali and Zhang Jie and Peng Shui, um, mainly because Zhang Jie's has gotten so much better. Yeah, Peng Shui's used to be like numbered solidly number two, but I feel like Zhang Jie is like listening to more rap these days <laughs> and like she's like cracking jokes and stuff. Yeah. It's actually really funny, like she yeah. kind of has this weird sarcastic streak that if you can tap into, it's great. But um, yeah, that's Peng Shui. I mean, I like her, I like watching her game, it's just because it's different. She's a, she's a rough matcher for anybody. She winds up playing a lot of close matches. Mm-hmm. I feel like I mean, she had a great match against Panetta at the US Open mm-hmm. last year. Went deep in the third. She just plays, you know, doesn't necessarily win a lot of those matches as much as she maybe should, but she's a very dangerous opponent. Not as outwardly aggressive as mm-hmm. uh, Bartoli or Sal in a few hands, but an interesting looking game. Interesting, you know, all over. She plays a lot of good doubles. Mm-hmm. One, did she win a medal in doubles at some point? Was that her? No, that was Yan Zi, wasn't it? The two of Yan Zi and the other one. And Yan Song. Yeah. Yeah, Yan Song. Anyway, that's Peng Shui. Yeah. We yeah. like Peng Shui. We like Peng Shui. Yeah. There's not much not to like. I mean, she's an interesting player to watch on outer courts. She doesn't make it onto the main stage much when she does. And she works hard. I mean, it's yeah. funny. To, she's a funny player to watch practice because I think I saw her a lot last year in Miami. Um, and it's a lot of kind of the same drills that Marion Bartoli does, minus being tied to a fence and, <laughs> you know, having, like, tennis balls tied to your heels and stuff like that. But, you know, just kind of like her coach drops a ball and she just swats it, like, you know, like a fly swatter. It, there's something kind of like, I don't know. Um, Very homegrown. Yeah, 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 I like it. I like it. So. You ready to get to our boy? Our lanky Croat. Marin Cilic. Marin Cilic uh, was top ten at one point, I believe. And has had a bunch of injury problems. What were his injury problems? Do you remember? Specifically? Oh my gosh, off the top of my head, I don't. And it's only not playing back. I mean, he's mm-hmm. at his sort of peak, I guess, in the... What year was it? Um, Where he beat Andy Murray? He beat Andy Murray at the U.S. Open. Easily. That was, that was the thing. He beat Andy Murray like 7-5, 6-2, 6-2. And just really has that sort of zoning game where 
he's so big and so flat that when he's on, he can see anybody. The frustrating thing with Chilich, though, is that he is, you know, you, he's a big man who plays small man games. Yeah. So you see him, you see how huge he is, and he actually doesn't hit for his size. Like, if you want to talk about, like, Dominica Sabolkova being, like, pound for pound, like, punching above her weight class, Marin Chilich totally punches below his weight class. Yeah. Um, he's so the he's size not, of Adele, though. Mm-hmm. He doesn't hit but he doesn't. He, but I mean, not, not many people can, but he doesn't even hit like an Isner. It seems like, it just seems like with me watching Chilich play, he, there's always a moment, at least 20 times during a match, where I'm like, how are you, why are you still in this rally? Yeah. How is this rally still going? This rally, should, you should not be rallying for 20 plus strokes. Yeah. And yet you seem kind of content to do so. And so um, it almost strikes me sometimes as a guy who is just kind of, shoved into a game style that maybe wasn't exactly what he should be doing. But. And, and off-court, he seems like one of the nicer guys, mm-hmm. for sure. He's very, very good in touch. He's tremendous English. And just as sort of a, sort of mentioning Rebecca Marino earlier, he's sort of a normalcy about him when you see him. He just seems like, in Washington once, he wasn't playing that day. He just like, was like wandering around the stadium just watching by himself. He's like, I'm bored. I wonder if that's like a Croatian thing, because it's actually a pretty consistent trait among like him, Mario Ancic, Ivan Lubacic. Like mm-hmm. they're very normal. Yeah. Maybe not with the girls, but with the guys. You know, like with, they're kind of very, you know, they're, they're well spoken. They're generally well read. And, and, you know, I don't know. It's interesting. They stand out that way. Marin Schultz, I think, definitely could have a, a renaissance. Marin Chilich getting back in the top 15, top 10, even this year, I don't think it's surprising. No. He's too good a player to rank point. Yeah, I mean, I think that everybody kind of, he's still, regardless of his ranking, he's one of those players where you look to see where he is in the draw, because he can, he may not be able, at this point in his, where he is coming back from injury, be able to pull off, you know, win after win after win after win after win for a title, but Mm -hmm. he still has a capacity to put three back-to-back-to-back wins together pretty well. And whoever's in that way, in his way, it can cause a problem. Absolutely. So he's a good bracket buster. Guy. Disruptive, disruptive force. Mm-hmm. And for a little ahead of schedule this episode, you want to talk about Alex Wozniak? Well, we sure. have our, our sort of fair person here, number sixty. Mm-hmm. Bonus picking up, taking up for time, people. Woo-hoo. You better enjoy this while you can. Enjoy the bump, Alex. Yes, Alex Wozniak. Um, speaking of bumpy, the match he played against Venus in Miami oh. was one of the. I don't know if I want to say worse, but I'll say worse. That was one of the worst matches I've ever seen. Quality. Worst quality match. Because it was actually kind it of dramatic. Thoroughly, it was thoroughly entertaining. Yeah, yeah. She had 5-4, 30-love in the third on her serve and hit like four serves under 70 miles per hour out of complete nerve. Got a match. She had another second serve on the third point there at 30-all at 61 miles per hour. And Venus, like, couldn't get to it because, like, it was a 61-mile-per-hour serve, and she got a match point, did nothing with it, lost the match to Venus, and afterwards just couldn't have been, like, more sort of, you know, sweeter about it. And she's a very, very nice... Yeah. Nice she's girl. Canadian. Yeah, she's very Canadian. Yeah. French-Canadian. French-Canadian. She wouldn't know by her name. Yes, yes. But uh, but I, I've always really liked Alex Wozniak. I mean, she, she made her splash when she won Stanford uh, 2008. Eight. Olympic year. Yep. Um, beating Serena. I believe. Didn't she beat Serena that year? No, Serena oh. was a bit Olympic. She would have beaten um, she beat somebody that was like she beat Mary in the final. Maybe it was Mary. Maybe it was. Yeah. Anyways, but it was. Uh, but she won Stanford, so that was quite good. Um, and she, yeah, she just always seemed real nice, and um, she was kind of part of that Polish resurgence, like right around 2008. Um, there's all these articles about you know her and Redvonska, the Redvonska sisters, because Ursula was doing you know not bad either, um, and Caroline. Um, Lissicky. And Lissicky. So that was kind of the little army of poles that, regardless of where they're. Angelique Kerber now is in that group. Kerber is in that group, which you know because like they, there are pictures of them like from back in the day, like all of the Polish girls like hanging out. Like they, they rolled hard and they rolled deep. <laughs> um, and they were not necessarily, so long as they had Kerber on the team, I was, I'm not going to run one of them against the back there, Kelly. But uh, Angelique Kerber is very sweet. I just yes. have always thought that she looked like Sabina Lissicky's older sister who would like beat the crap out of you if you made Sabina, Sabina cry. Sabina doesn't. Sabina wouldn't. Sabina yeah. wouldn't her, 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 her fly. But, but I feel like Angelique might give you a stern talking to in a dark alley <laughs> if you made Sabina cry. Even if you said it's not my fault, she cried. <laughs> she cries. That's what she does sometimes. She does, she does cry fair enough. She does. Um, so yeah, so Alex Wozniak, big fan. I mean, and she obviously had some injury problems, and so that took her off the tour a little bit. 
But uh, we also saw her here. Yeah, she's here. She beat Christina McHale. She was the first player in 2012 ranked below Christina McHale at the year. Christina McHale. We talked about Christina McHale just sort of taking care of business a lot. Alex Wozniak disrupted that with that. So Mm -hmm. that was an interesting match. That was interesting. I think McHale. I'm not sorry. I think Wozniak will be back top of the. I mean, she's you know she's a 30 to 40 kind of player Mm -hmm. in the day. So Mm -hmm. on her way up. I like it. That was take number. And we don't even talk about Ivan Dodd again, but no. we can't. We don't. No, he hasn't done much in the, in the short run. Since his NCR bump. Yeah. Now we're going to take some more questions from the people, because we are all about the people here in our challenges. Even the proletariat. Exactly. <laughs> Much like what we say about sitting in first class, we are decidedly up the coach. Yeah, up the coach. Up the coach. <laughs> oh, People. up the coach. I thought you said up the coach, and I was like, man, that could have been different. That's <laughs> anyway. Moving on. Uh, the first question we're going to talk about, the first question we're going to answer, is comes from uh, Ali Efe, and he asks us, "Could you put your input on changing the dynamics between linesmen, umpires, and players as to players being able to challenge three times?" Timing this question is interesting because a bunch of things happened with regard to that in Miami. I mean, obviously, challenges have been around now for about six, seven years, Mm -hmm. I want to say. Hawkeye at most, a lot of tournaments. So, yes, Courtney, what do you think about the changing dynamics in general? And then we can talk about the Miami instance specifically. Well, I mean, I think the the argument from uh, a lot of players and what you hear from players is that they think that because umpires can now feel safe that they have Hawkeye as like a backup, that they put the onus on the players to now challenge, right? So in other words, in the past, when you didn't have Hawkeye system, then the umpires would be more inclined to step in and overrule because there wasn't a stopgap measure. Yeah. Now there is a stopgap measure, and the umpire almost tacitly, by sitting on his hands, essentially says, you know what, player, if you want to challenge, then you challenge. If you think a call is wrong, then you challenge. And that way, the umpire never puts himself out in a situation of being wrong. Right. It's all on the player, and then it's verified via the Hawkeye system. So, And, and umpires, when they do overrule, a lot of times overrules get challenged, yep. and the umpire is almost always right. Yep. Because usually when umpires do overrule now, and maybe always, I mean, we don't know the data on how accurate overrules were in the old days, sure. but they do when they're sure of that. Yeah. That's how it should be. I mean, more, I mean, more often than not, and I don't mean like 51% to 49%, I would say like 95% of the time when I'm watching a match, Umpire's always right yeah. on an overrule. Very yeah. rarely are they ever wrong. They're there because they're good at their job. Exactly. When you're when you're a chair umpire who's working at the pro level at a court with Hawkeye, when you're that good, you're gonna be good. That's why we that's why we come to know certain umpires because they're the ones that get the big matches on the big stages yeah. all of the time because they're the best. There are way more chair umpires than you see on the TV. Yep. There are plenty of chair umpires who are working outer courts here, working doubles here, working mixed doubles at a grand slam. Remember. Jurgen Meltzer making fun of the chair umpire during a mixed match in Australia this year, being like, well, obviously, you know, you're out here working mixed doubles, you're clearly a terrible chair umpire or something, which is mean. It's mean. But, you know. I, I would say, well, you're playing mixed doubles and you're not in there, so obviously you're a terrible player. Oh, <laughs> I mean, that's what I would say. That, back. I mean, it's fair. just an unfair critique. But yes, I mean, so so anyways, obviously you want to talk about what happened it in Miami. It changes the dynamics. And basically what happened in Miami, two things. In the men's quarterfinal between Rafael Nadal and Joel Songa. Songa complained afterwards that Nadal was getting all these overrules in his favor, none in Songa's favor, and Songa was being left to challenge a lot, and he claimed there was pro-Nadal bias because the chair empire wants to be able to keep working in the top matches and keep Nadal happy. Which is a few interesting conspiracy theories in there that are probably not super verifiable based on statistics or whatever. Although there is a certain degree of you become a chair empire by getting all these big matches by keeping people happy. Degree. Well, here's where I'm going with okay. it. You keep people happy. You don't you don't give a lot of code violations. You don't give time violations. And when you do, it causes fines. It causes all sorts of paperwork for you to do. That's why you don't see as many chair empires calling violations on in dolls, for example, for time as you might otherwise do, because it just sort of riles things up more than perhaps the chair empire wants them to be riled up. Okay. So I mean, I, I I agree with your general your your conclusion, which is that. It's not in the best interest of, well, okay. What I would say is that I, I, I honestly don't think that that's the case. I think that at the end of the day, the umpires know kind of how to, okay, well, hold on, let me go back. I think that there's something to be said about wanting to not kind of um, make waves. 
because one of the biggest critiques that a lot of times players and fans will have when an umpire does step into a match is why the heck are you stepping into the match? Why are you making you, umpire, the story, as yeah. opposed to just let the boys play, right? Like, don't, don't get in there. Don't, don't um, you know, um, interfere. Mm-hmm. And so there is, I think, part of that with the umpires is that they kind of want to let the guys play. And so if, if one of the players wants to complain, hey, Roth is taking too long, then the umpire will be like, hey, so one of our, my guys is unhappy, I'm going to go ahead and issue a time violation or give Roth a soft violation. But if everybody on the court is happy, what you know, like maybe it doesn't, you know, my job is just stay out of this. Like I don't right. want to change the course of events simply because I issue an, a warning and, and it could be to Rafa, it could be to anybody. And yeah. they blow their top and the whole match changes because of something I did. So do you, like this, do you like that and that's a good thing or do you like to see less of that? I would like to see less of it. Yeah. I, I would like to see some badass, like, you know, umpires who are willing to sit there and tell the players no. Like, there are rules of this game, and you're going to play by them. And I would love to see that. Love it. It adds another dimension to it. Like, if everybody wants to complain that Hawkeye has basically made it so that tennis has less personality because players can't lose their heads. There's no McEnroe. You can't be a McEnroe. You can't McEnroe. You can barely be erotic nowadays because it's like you can't rip on an umpire for being right or wrong because you're going to find out whether or not the umpire is right or wrong. You know, know, to the extent that that aspect of it, of, of kind of giving players an opportunity to get their personalities out, is gone. Let's look the umpire rile. Let the umpire rile things up. Hunger Games style. Get in there. <laughs> create some. Create some drama when it gets boring. Look how topical we That's are. That's so topical. Uh, Sorry, I just saw it. <laughs> uh, I have not yet seen it, but I've read more of the books. Than you have, yes. So I'm waiting. I'm waiting to finish the third book. Try to say spoiler free, just in case they go out of sequence for some reason. <laughs> playing it safe rather than sorry. Yeah. But yeah. So I basically agree with all of that. So, okay, but then what, so the other Miami incident. The other Miami incident <laughs> was more interesting. It was, all on, it was mostly on court. Um, Maria, after a very close, pretty high-quality match between Maria Sharapova and Carolyn Wozniacki, Carolyn Wozniacki had run out of challenges, had zero challenges left, had no challenges remaining. At the hey, 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 quick, quick plug. There was a, a match point. Sharapova was serving. Hit a serve. Second serve. Second serve. Maria Sharapova <laughs> hit a second serve. That was called out initially, but quickly overruled by Sharon Empire, Hotter Nimi. And Carolyn was got very upset, basically saying that Nimi should have not overruled or ruled against Maria because Maria had challenges remaining and therefore could challenge. Wozniacki had used all of her challenges, had no challenges remaining, and couldn't do anything about it. So basically, Wozniacki's premise, which she backed up in press later, was. The ball, she said, she said one thing, she said the ball was so close, was so barely in that it might as well have been out. May as well have been out. Might as well have been out. Why not? Out. In or out? Yeah, it doesn't matter. I mean, it barely caught the line. I mean, it that's was, basically out by a mile. It was barely <laughs> on the line. So, Wozniacki did not like that. And she said that basically this should be given an opportunity to challenge. So, what were your thoughts on how that all went down? I mean, how it all went down is that it went down the way that it was supposed to go down, yeah. which is that Cater saw the ball and he was right. Yeah. I mean, that's something that should be emphasized is that he was absolutely right. And for him to overrule on match point, I mean, here, he's a guy who typically does not overrule, um, I think much to his detriment. Um, yeah. One of the arguments that I made was that I thought that if, if, if um, Nooney had a better reputation among players as being a guy who was really proactive in a match, then... I'm not, I, I wonder if Caroline would have been as kind of, you're so wrong, you know, because it just seemed odd that he was all of a sudden... He, I think it's a match point circumstance that really made it crazy. Well, yes, that too. Um, but uh, but it's, I, I, I'm generally of the, of the um, school that thinks that it's not an umpire's job to take into consideration the situation of a match. Completely agree with that. The call is the call is the call. And Shino it's, Suribuchi. She, it's the Shino rule. I mean, I, I, I totally agree. Like, you know, so many people after uh, Shino uh, called the football on Serena, you know, you heard it in the booth with McEnroe and everybody saying, like, there is no way that you call that at 30, what was it, 30, 40? 15, 30. 15, 30. Right? Okay, whatever it was. Um, but you, there's no way you call that in that situation. You have to let the players play. And I know this is contradicting a little bit what I said before about wanting the umpires to get more involved. But I generally just think that, you know, if you see the ball in, you see the ball in. And it doesn't matter what the score is and it doesn't matter what the situation is. You call it. That's sport. That is sport. That's the way. It's not like NHL playoff overtime, you know, where basically all hell breaks loose and the 
really let the boys play tennis, things are on the line or not on the line, whether it's the ball or the foot on a football call. So not a lot of gray area in tennis as far as line, line calling should go. So there, that's that question. I hope we sort of dance around. We talk about a lot there, but basically, yeah. hopefully we hit that one. And then the other questions we had, um, we got the, uh, our Tumblr set up yes. at nochallengemaining.tumblr.com, and they were on a slightly different topic. Yes, so that we got actually a number of questions on this, and so I'm just going to kind of synthesize them into to one general inquiry, I suppose. But there are a lot of people kind of asking questions about, basically this is kind of behind the, 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 the curtain, behind the veil, media type stuff. So the effective questions were, what, how, how do press conferences actually go down? There were, so there was one question that was asking, you know, it just seems like some of the questions, you know, don't are being asked by people who didn't even watch the match. Um, sometimes it seems like the questions, you know, why do some players have to do press and other players don't? Why is it Who's it up to? Yeah, who's it up to? Um, why is it sometimes that's made public and sometimes it's not? So um, so Ben and I, I guess, we're just going to kind of address, kind of give, give people, you behind the scenes. Story. Yeah, kind of how it happens because it's, it's um, because I do see these complaints a lot, especially during major tournaments. And I do, I have to admit, I do laugh a little bit because I feel like sometimes people think that there's more of a conspiracy theory going on behind the scenes than there actually is or that there's a, a, a room full of incompetent people who are just like sitting in the corner picking their toes yeah. and um, and that's I mean sure there's every question is going to have that person yeah. <laughs> or more than but than a few of those people but generally I mean I think Ben can attest as well the people at least that we kind of see in press rooms regularly and, and how it all goes down it's a pretty seamless process, and, and, and uh, we understand why there's frustrations, but there are reasons for it. But take Well, I mean, basically, the first part of the question is how press conferences happen. Basically, a press conference will happen if it's somebody huge, just assume, if it's a Federer, Nadal, Serena playing. The general rule is if you are, request, if you are requested, you have to show up. Yeah. That's the general rule. Yeah. So before a match is over, and a lot of times even before a match begins, we're required, journalists are required to let the ATP or the WTA or the tournament know, you know, I want to talk to this person, win or lose, winner only, you know, that sort of thing. And if enough and they, people... And they do push for it to be winners only. Yes. They do want, you. they don't, they try not to have too many losers come in and talk because they're not in that good mood. And generally, most stories, a lot of stories you'll see are written with only quotes from the winner. That's just how that works. Right. And also, in terms of slams, uh, there will be a lot of different rooms going on. And this comes up with transcripts, which you see on the SLAM websites. Basically, the transcribers are only in the main room in Australia. So especially in the first week, 80% of players that play singles matches come into press. Think about that. That is a lot. That is almost everybody comes into press. Because everyone has their own country's press to talk to. And so you might have, I don't know, um, someone like Polona Herzog come in well, you don't even have to take an, an example that extreme. When yeah. you're talking about the major tournaments, let's say, you have Yulia Gerges. Yeah. We all love Yulia Gerges. Yulia Gerges is a thing. She comes into press. She's requested by Germans, right? German journalists, so that's clear. But if not enough American journalists request her or English-speaking journalists request her as well, she doesn't get put into the main press room where there's transcription services. Yeah. She gets put into a secondary press conference room, which means she talks to the German press, and the German press get their... And maybe if you have one or two English press, then you can kind of sneak in and you can ask your English questions as well with your tape recorder. But there's no transcription. Yeah. And you have to understand that at big slams and also in major tournaments like Indian Wells and Miami, that's happening all over the place. Like, they're, you know, like a, you know, Argentinian journalists are talking to Juan Martín del Potro. If Americans or English-speaking journalists don't want to talk to him, then that's not going to be transcribed because our transcription services are only in English. English only. English only. So... Understand that. That's that's one aspect of it. But yeah, generally they if you, they are requested, they, they are required to show up. If they're but the other thing as well is that if not enough people request them, then again they're not put into the main interview. Right. So you could have like a Christina McHale, um, or uh, yeah, I mean I guess McHale, Bethany Maddox. A Bethany Maddox, right? And and in Australia. In Australia, not everybody wants to talk to her. So that's secondary. You don't get a press or transcript. You know, journalists are... It does, sucks for the journalists, too, because we have to sit there and transcribe. There are problems in my to do it over journalists. Some yes. journalists like doing things. Every, everybody has their times when you, A, like the more intimate setting first, especially in Australia, where we've both been, where it's like this sort of weird stadium seating in the press room. It could feel sort of inquisition-y almost at times. 
and it's more intimate and more sort of conversational in the smaller rooms. And also, if you want to keep quotes quote, exclusive, they don't get immediately blasted out on the website. Which is huge. And a lot of, I mean, you know, obviously Ben and I have been on both sides of it to where we've been, you know, kind of not within the media side and then where you're just craving quotes and then on the other side when you actually have the quotes. And, you know, there is kind of a, you know, if, if I know that there's not going to be transcription services for the interview that I'm about to conduct, my questions are completely different mm, yeah. because I, I will ask questions that I, I'll, follow, I'll file the answers away for a piece later down the road or something like that. Whereas if I know that the minute that I ask a question, it's going to be blasted via Twitter, then I'll, I'll curtail my questions and try and get a one-on-one -on -one instead to do what I need to do to get my exclusive stuff. But sometimes you will ask a question, or one will ask a question at a press conference that gives the most interesting answer in the press conference, and suddenly everybody's stories are about that topic that answer when they weren't originally going to be and they're sort of you know feeding off of what your idea was that happens it and, you know, I mean it, it, no I don't get pissed about it no I don't think Ben gets pissed Not about it um you know you accept that that's kind of the cost of doing business when mm -hmm. you have to do, when you can't get access to the player one-on-one -on -one and you have to do it you know within the main the main press room um so then moving on to a secondary question about you know why is it sometimes that players don't do press or why wouldn't somebody want to talk to Juan Martino Botro? Or why wouldn't somebody want to request Savino you know, Lissicky or like yeah. things like that? One thing to recognize, especially in the big tournaments early in the week, there are matches happening. Yeah. And the people who are in the press room have deadlines. And they have stories that they've pitched to their editors that they're responsible for that day. Their job is to write that story that they've promised their editor. So if I promise my editor, yes, today I will do a story on this Bernard Tomic match. So I'm out on court six watching Bernard Tomich do whatever he's doing. Whatever's happening back in the press room while I'm out there, I'm not there for it. Yeah. So I might really want to talk to Anna Ivanovich, but I can't do it because I have to be covering the story that I'm responsible for covering that day. Mm -hmm. And um, I know for myself, I have a lot more flexibility because I'm a blogger. But for print journalists, their deadlines are hard, they're fast, and... Um, there's less and their topics are not flexible. They, they yeah. can't, if something, if they decide at the beginning of the day, oh, I see Serena is up second, I'll write about Serena for this deadline, they fine. And then on another court, it's not watching them say, I don't know, something happens like Stozer at, at a similar time. That writer might be able to do something with that, but they won't have the details, they'll just sort of scrap together what they can and then go to press. It's not easy to change courts when you're doing print journalism and stuff. So, that's one thing. And then, I mean, basically, in practical terms, most journalists, most American journalists are not, I'm just talking not German, right. in the Sabine Lissicky example, she's not that relevant to what you're doing at that time. She may be a top 15 player, maybe someone who's a very charming person to talk to, nice to talk to, people like her generally, but she's not going to cut the threshold of relevance for what it is. Right. Like, if, if I'm standing in line, not me. But like if, if, I'm a, if I'm an American journalist and I'm standing in line to get some food and, Sabine, and I see Sabina Lissicky and we strike up a conversation, she's a perfectly pleasant person to talk to. I'll chit chat with her, like blah, blah, blah. But if I am covering, if I'm in charge of three or four stories that day that I need to get out to four different outlets and I'm sitting there and I've got two screens op you know, open, I've got live score, I'm writing all at the same time and processing tweeting. and finishing and tweeting, I'm not gonna stop all that for five minutes to spend a talk with Sabina Lissicky about a match that I'm not concerned about, that I'm not writing about, and... Match you probably didn't see, which was another yeah. question we got. Like, how often do journalists write the match to see things? And that goes back to the Stoser being upset example. A lot, like, a lot in that situation, if you're watching Serena and Stoser have to lose, you probably didn't see much of that Stoser match, or maybe you flipped over to it on, like, match point or something. Mm -hmm. You didn't get a sense. When you're in the press room, you almost never get to see, unless it's a later round, you don't get to see matches from beginning to end. You have to sort of keep an eye on everything, and try to piece together what you can from what you do see. Yeah. And it's not a perfect system. It's not a perfect stretch. system. And But at the same time, it's not, um, at least among the certain set of, of particular, I mean, again, I think I'm really just talking about American journalists, because I don't, I mean, every journalistic community very is different, different, very different, you know, and, and their rules and how they operate is so different. But at least within the American, the ones that, that I've been around and that, um, you know, I've spoken with, especially at the majors and, and bigger tournaments, like, I see how they do it, and it all makes sense to me. Yeah. And it's never because, like, there's a laziness, and there's never, they're not cutting corners. 
they're focusing on the story that they have to do, and that's their responsibility. And it's not you get paid for. Yeah, and and one of the funny things too is even for both Ben and I, because I think that sometimes people kind of, at least I know for me, people kind of make fun of me because they're like, you know, if you're in front of your computer, like how are you watching this, 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 and these matches? And I'm like, well, we're watching the feed. And they're like, how can you be at a tournament and you're not out there? And I'm like, so. You want me to keep you informed as to everything that's going on around the ground, but then you also want me to sit courtside at a single match. And, like, I don't understand how you think this is possible. And yeah. it's not that, you know, like, sometimes you get those kind of comments, and you're like, There's a, there is a practicality as to how this all happens. And um, when you do make a decision to go out to watch the match, it's in the beginning of a tournament, middle of a tournament, not something you can like take lightly. You have to be like, okay, I'm definitely doing this match for sure, or this match is so crazy that I absolutely have to spend all my time on it, and I don't have any other writing to do, I don't have any other whatever to do, but can't go to any press conferences while you're out there, don't know what press is happening while you're out there. So I mean, don't actually know if something's going on on the other side of the grounds, which if you were on Twitter, or if you were you know, in front of the, the, the feed, you'd be able to see if you were back in the press room. Yeah. So there's a lot of like you know there's a lot of hard decisions that you have to make um, early on and, and um, you know it's it's not easy and everybody chooses to cover the sport their own way. So from a fan perspective, um, I would think that that people have kind of zoned in now like to the writers that they like write reading and cover it the way they like it to be covered and maybe they reject others and hopefully everybody kind of just. That's the good thing about Twitter is that you get the sort of mosaic of different people's coverage styles in your feed. Mm-hmm. You know, you see how different people do it, and people are going to do it differently. I mean, there are stories that you know of the Americans are core people that do most, of the, do go to most of the tournaments. Mm-hmm. They're going to be done in certain stories others will ignore, and you can you know yeah. figure out stuff about what their style is. And I, and I will add this because there was one question that, or criticism, I guess, that came in through the Tumblr, uh, basically saying like you know it seems like there's a lot of journalists who don't go to all the tournaments, um, American journalists specifically, um, you know. How can they really be commenting, you know, on a match that they didn't see, or you know, or things if they're not there? And that's understandable. I mean, because I've definitely found myself handcuffed by that just easily. Last week, I didn't go to Miami. There was no coverage for the first uh, week. I couldn't see a single match. Writing about Miami was near impossible for me. Um, but the other thing to just remember is that a lot of times, you know, the especially to me, the, the top-notch journalists, the ones that are, that are you know, great, you know, like Peter Boto, Matt Cronin, Doug Robson, you know, all those guys, Chris Clary, like, they have connections, yeah. and they have a Rolodex that I don't have. And they might not have been at that match, but they have the ability to pick up the phone and call that player's coach and say, what happened? You know, and get the inside scoop. And maybe that, that information that they get could, like, be way better than just sitting there courtside and just watching. That does happen. And it's also, I mean, a lot of times you get, especially following tennis and following live sports early rounds, and fans get this too, you get, even though you don't see the match always, you get better kind of understanding what happens in matches. You can get some detailed statistics on stuff. You know, you know how, how to read live sports. You know how players are trending and stuff. You can, you can draw, I mean, like, you can draw a conclusion from results you see. Oh, if I saw, for example, today that I don't know. She didn't, but if Pavlyuchenko lost again today, I don't really need to see what happened to know that <laughs> what's going on with her 2012 has been horrible and yeah. continuing down that path. That's basically. It. I mean, there is so you know you can't have all eyes on everything in tennis because there's just so much going on, but you can make educated guesses or conclusions yeah. about stuff that are relatively and if not have, terrible. And if you have contacts, they don't become guesses anymore. Yeah. Right, yeah. so it's like you could you could cover, you could not cover the sport for three months, but then still, if you know the right people to call and know know how to do journalism, like yeah. you know know who to talk to and how to piece things together, your piece could be that you write on your preview for the clay court season could blow any clay court preview out of the water, even if the person who was writing it has been, you know, At every match. Every, every match, you know. So it's all I'm saying is that it's just not like black and white. I think that there's a kind of a lot of complaining sometimes, I think, from fans, and I understand it, because I get how it's perceived from the outside, because I've definitely been there, and I'm mm-hmm. like, God, like, why wouldn't somebody want to talk to Sam, like, Sam is, I think, a really good example, I think she's somebody who is a top 10 player who never gets hauled in the press, yeah. and it's because, at the end of the day, she's not particularly relevant for anyone but Aussie press, and Aussie press is never here. Yeah, Aussie press is not travel. Right, so, you know, today she won, and I'm pretty sure she didn't do press. Yep. Yeah. You know, I mean, if we had asked for her, then would've she would have. But she would have been great, and she would have been great. But you know, when you're running around and you're trying to pay attention to ten different things, 
Sometimes or trying to record, record a podcast. Or trying to record a podcast. Stuff happens. Stuff does happen. So stuff just happened on episode seven, I believe. We can wrap it up there. Thank you for joining us. As keep the always. questions coming. Keep the like questions them. coming. They keep us going because, you know, we especially as the clay season winds on, we're likely going to have lighter weeks. We're not going to be at that many tournaments after this week. So until the French. So keep them coming and we'll keep this coming. Thank you again. Mm-hmm.